Hey, everybody. This is Tom Sharpling. It's exciting to be here with you. And boy, we have something exciting right now. It's the first edition of the Best Show Book Club. Can you believe it? Finally, after all the talk, it has begun. And we started, we're starting this with a great book. Couldn't kick it off with something uh, as fun as can be. A book called Nothing But a Good Time. The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. And the book is by Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock. And we have them both here. So thank you, Tom and Richard, for joining us today for our first book club. Thank you for for having having us. us. (laughs) We are one person. Yes, it happens. It does. The singularity is underway. Um, And we are also joined by... Joe Dana, uh, a best show listener who is a, a metal enthusiast who can uh, bring a, bring a, the represent the listeners on this one. Thank you so much for having me. No, thanks for being here, Joe. And of course, we have AP Mike, Pat Byrne, and Jason Gore here also. And it's a nice, uh, it's a nice group. It's Hi nice guys. Group. Hey everybody. Hello, hello. Hello. So, so uh Tom and Richard, I guess let's begin at the beginning. Uh where the idea come from to tell this story and to tell it as an oral history and what is your relationship to the music that's uh that that comprises the book? Um the decision to do an oral history i'll start i'll do this backwards was we were on the fence and our our agent said you're going to do an oral history right and uh we're like okay (laughs) that's decided um i am uh of the exact age that uh, i was 15 in 1986 i'm 50 so this stuff was just coming directly at me when i you know when i was at that age and i'm uh a guitar player too. So I was consuming this music with no level um, of, of irony or, or distance or anything. It was just like, these guys are the coolest guys. And it was weird because I was also, I had, like had a mixtape that had Husker do flip your wig on one side and poison open up and say, ah, on the other. So I was sort of had my feet in both worlds, but this music, I think because it was so visual and the guitar heroes and stuff was really, sort of what captured my imagination and was like this aspirational uh, thing. I was like, I would like to just be as cool as CC DeVille one day. So it really was um, the music that sort of shaped a, a lot of how I look at the world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Rich, you know, is a little bit younger, but I think was equally uh, uh, sort of tainted by it. What do you think, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience to Tom, except I am much, much more youthful, you know, in spirit. Uh, now I'm just, I'm five years younger than him. So I, I grew up with the stuff as well. Uh, was totally consumed by it. Like Tom, I play guitar. So as a guitar player, again, like this, this was the stuff, you know, like what, what would you want other than to be George Lynch or Warren Martini or, you know, CeCe DeVille or any of these guys? So I was completely enthralled by it 
from that angle and then just everything about the music. I mean, there was no, you know, irony or distance. I just was completely sucked in. And to me, seeing, you know, Motley Crue, the looks the kill video or something like that. It was like, these guys were like superhuman. They were, they were like, you know, not of this earth to my, my eight year old brain. And I was just, I was just totally in from, from the second I saw and heard it. Yeah. I mean, there, there is kind of a, a, a funny thing when you think about that, the, the metal, the rise of metal kind of aligned with the rise of that, that wave of wrestling also where in the eighties, where it just be everywhere where the characters became superheroes and just, it was really just larger than life on an, on a different scale than had existed before for both things. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the point of, of this music of, of, of this hard rock from the eighties was not, you know, was not to equalize, the audience and the performer, you know I mean? That was, it was the opposite. It was really, these are yeah, exactly superheroes uh, um, on the, on the stage. And it was, you know, they are not like, it, it wasn't like this unifying thing. You were there to adore and sort of, and, and worship them. And, and as a kid I did. And then what happened to answer the second half of your question, if you still like, if, if you still want an answer, you can cut <laughs> me off at any time. Yeah, yeah. No, um, when I start, so I started when I got out of college. Uh, I started working at Guitar World magazine. So this is in 1994, and um, <clears throat> this gets to why we did the book. And and Richard actually came in as like an intern a couple of years later. And in that era, like 94, 95, 96, even though the guitar players from these bands, Vito Brada, George Lynch, all these guys, had been on the cover of Guitar World you know, for the preceding decade, by 94, 95, it was literally as if this stuff had not happened. You know, like magazines did not, the magazine did not cover these guys anymore. Um, and so there was very little opportunity for, you know, the better part of a decade and probably into like the early 2000s to even write about this stuff um, or talk to these people, you know, and Rich and I, who ended up working for the same company for many years, we would just basically, that was our quote unquote water cooler talk. We would, you know, some people talk about, about baseball. We talked about hair metal. Like, who do you think was better? Janie Lane or this? Like, and it, it just went on for years and years and years, like uh, of us working together and being friends. And, um, at a, I also, uh, and the sort of the real moment where it all came together was um, I also record and produce bands. That's sort of my other gig. I, you know, I work with, uh, I work with Dave Hill. I work with not a surf. I work with these bands and um, I actually got fired by a band that was fronted by Paul Stanley's son. Uh, and it crushed me. And for some reason that day I was, yeah, I know. Uh, Good band, but and, and somehow that day I was like, I cannot leave. I I need to do this book and and do something for myself where I'm not at the mercy of of musicians all the time. Sure. And um, I think I, Rich, I think I called you like that day and was like, dude, do you want to do the book? Because we had always talked about the book. This was there was no other book. It was the book that we had talked about. Um for, for, for doing for years. And, and he was like, yeah, 
and and that you know and then that began a four-year odyssey basically mm-hmm. for which then, we were at the mercy of other bands like sure back again yeah. yes. Mer- then you're yes. just like well the by all time. means i don't want to be at the mercy of metal of, of other musicians metal guys and then suddenly you're just like i wonder if i can get an interview with don dockin mm-hmm. and exactly now i'm at don dockin <laughs> shoving me around now. yeah what 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 was the process of getting the ball rolling like to go from it's a it's a concept and it's a huge concept and then suddenly you now have to go uh story by story step by step through it and start gathering these these characters uh together what what were some of the what were some of the adventures with the physical assembling of the of the oral part of the oral history um, well, I don't, you know, I've, I don't know if Tom felt the same way, but I think one of the saving graces for me at the beginning was, I, I don't know that I really thought about that part of it all that much. I mean, I think the reason we had put off doing it for so long was certainly because both of us were sort of scared of jumping into this because of our, you know, beyond our own personal issues and anxieties. We, we both just love this music so much that we knew we would go really deep and, and that was sort of frightening. But once we had that conversation, then it was just, I mean, I think for me at least, within the next two or three days, I had an interview scheduled with Stephen Piercy anyway for a solo record he was working on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just asked him, like, I was like, hey, I'm going to be doing this book. Um, can I interview for you for it? And he was like, yeah, call me back later this afternoon. We'll do it. Um, and we did it. So, you know, so it was like a couple of days in, it's like, okay, well, we have Stephen Piercy and, and Tom had people on his end. And it was just sort of like, we didn't go into it like, okay, let's, let's figure out how we're going to tell the Motley Crue story and let's go after everyone in that world. Then let's figure out Cinderella, go after. It was just like anyone we could think of, you just start reaching out and put tentacles out everywhere and then just get all the stuff in and then figure out how to mold it into something you know, after that, like a puzzle basically, but there was not, and, and through doing that, we both sort of naturally gravitated towards bands that we loved, you know, Tom was doing white lion and I was doing faster pussycat and, you know, so on and so forth. But as far as reaching out to people, it was just like, just whoever you think of, like go find them and then, and then worry about how it all pieces together later on. Yeah, it's yeah. it's there's definitely I mean, it's sort of not to get like too into making the sausage, but, you know, there's sort of two there was two phases to making the book. There was the you know, the first year is you're you want to do a book and you're interviewing people for a book, but you don't have a book deal. So you're really, um, you know, just relying on the kindness of strangers and people, you know, or people who are friends, you know, friends of friends or associates. So like I got. I got went over to JJ French of Twisted Sisters apartment uh, on the Upper West Side for three hours because I knew him from other places. And you, you know, you're really at for at that first stage taking a little bit what you can get because you know people don't necessarily want to talk to you for two hours for a book that may not um, mm-hmm. exist. Particularly, you know, a lot of these guys have been. Is there cursing on this show? Show yeah, or not cursing? curse if you want? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's a have metal been, thing. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> have been quote unquote shat on a lot by mm-hmm. people in the press. So, 
I think we had to get like build up the reputation sort of in the, in this, the world, in this world that we were true fans and that we weren't just asking people the same four questions. And like, did you, do you think you looked stupid? Like when you dressed like that for that album? Yeah, that cover? This, is, yeah. this isn't like some punchline kind of like laughing right. at the form, but you guys actually love the music. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that is usually what happens. I think when journalists and uh, quote unquote hair metal um, artists convene, someone ends up look like, like the artist, you know, you can make anyone look dumb if you mm-hmm. pick the right quote. So we had to, I think we built up trust in the community and a lot of, you know, our interviews were through one guy telling another, like vetting us for another guy, you know, like mm-hmm. one guy in Cinderella is like, no, they're cool. And then suddenly you're talking to everybody else in the band. Um, so there was a little bit of, you know, uh, of, of that and earning and earning trust. Cause really these, these guys like, you know, have been treated very, very badly sometimes with good reason by by yeah by i mean it, it's funny it's like and i will say just to, to the rest of the uh the crew on this you can jump in at any point with it but i'm gonna i'm gonna ask this point as a question there there's such a funny thing involved in in watching the rise and fall of of a, a certain scene a certain uh, movement, whatever you want to call it. Um, Because especially one that's based on making them seem like gods. And then when suddenly they look human, it's, it's like a, it, it brings out a bunch of emotions where it's like, it's a little sad to see gods not be gods, but then there's something kind of there's, it's well, it's much more relatable to see them because you can, who can, who can relate to a, a, a bands playing in front of 20,000 people, but you can relate to people who've paid some dues and, and had it lost it. And they're getting some version of it back again. That might not look the same, but they're, they're, but they're, they're just paying their, their dues. And they're, they're actually, they're human. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, and I think that's why. I mean, there's a handful of bands, probably like ten bands, where we follow kind of the through line of their career through the decade, and I think that we really hone in on the early part of it um, because that is the part that I think both of us found most interesting. A, it's the part that you don't know as well because they weren't famous yet. But and Tom, Tom has made this point. I'm sort of stealing it from him, but you know, these bands, once they do make it, a lot of times the story is kind of the same, you know, cause they get really popular and they play arenas and they have, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll and all that and platinum records and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually the downfall, so on and so forth. But it's in the, in the early parts of their careers, um, at least I found um, really interesting. Um, and also, you know, to really stress the point, like we were trying to show like, Hey, a lot of people think of this music as this sort of very corporate, like major label created, you know, MTV slick video type of thing. But these guys really all came from really scrappy beginnings and, you know, they're, they're starting their own record labels and recording their own records. And like the, the labels want majors want nothing to do with them in the early days. You know, it really is a movement that's as DIY as like, you know, punk rock or indie rock or whatever you want to yeah. say. One thing, people don't 
often think of it that way. So we really yeah. wanted to stress that. Sure. But one thing to uh, that that is very interesting about that's I'm glad you made that point because there's something th- this scene of of metal hard rock uh artists they took the they 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 utilized the playbook that that punk bands, hardcore bands were using to get the word out, uh flyering like crazy you know, grinding it out, making the shows happen at any cost. There was really like a scrappy attitude that did not come from the metal world necessarily, but comes from the punk world and the hardcore world. When you think of like black there, these bands, Molly crew wasn't doing anything that black flag hadn't been doing already in terms of papering Los Angeles with flyers everywhere. They could put them to let people know the show's coming. But, but the difference is black flags, like goal for existing wasn't to be famous and be millionaires. That was not like the, but that is the, that is the underlying goal for so many of these bands is we want to be stars and we want people screaming our names. It wasn't just, it wasn't just music for the sake of music. I, of course, it, yeah, I don't want to diminish it and say that they didn't care about the music because that's obviously not true, but they had larger goals in mind for it outside of just being in a band and getting people to see the show uh, this weekend. Well, I mean, that's, I think it's, you know, it's sort of like uh, who, who they worshiped, right? I mean, like if you want to, the if you grew up and your band was like either Kiss or Judas Priest versus The Clash, hmm. you know what I mean? Then yeah. that's that's where you're going to go with it. And I think that is. And the other thing I think that's really important. And I'm not saying that everyone in in punk bands has money because it's not at all true. But like there really was a, you know, that and this might have been one of the last generations where this is true like a lot of these people are getting out of really you know they're going to have very very humdrum lives doing maybe not the funnest jobs if this doesn't work for them they're not Mm. these are not guys who went to college and then are doing this for a couple of years and then they're going to go get you know an mba or something these if they didn't if they didn't make it doing this i don't think any of them really had a plan a plan b so it really was um like a ticket out they're looking for a ticket out you know sorry go ahead i kind of think that axel rose may have gone to like ball state (laughs) gotten like a really good degree some indiana school i think i think you know when you when you and and you gentlemen who actually wrote the book might be able to speak to this a little bit more than I can, but just from looking at old flyers and stuff like that in the, in the early days, it looks like there was a lot of bills on either, maybe it's either the Starwood or the Fleetwood. I get the two uh, confused where there was like a mixed bill of early punk bands, early hardcore bands and the early, what we would call hair metal bands. And I think this is, my hypothesis. <laughs> I think, you know, there's always this like story about like the early days of LA punk where the hardcore kids moved in and the art school kids said, well, now it's all violent. We don't like it. 
And I think club owners were kind of like, well, the hardcore kids are making this not fun anymore. And then there's all these people who are just putting in the same amount of gumption, putting, you know, people in the seats and making it work for the clubs and, you know, everyone's fun, good time without necessarily the same amount of uh, violence that you had with the hardcore kids. And, um, and on top of that is they're not drinking at the hardcore shows, which just from the right. club owner's point of view, yeah. that's, that's the biggest. Uh, that would close the Azari's, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of, one of the things that we didn't know doing this book and, and Rich, please cut in on me if you if I'm talking too much. Um, but one of the things we didn't know was that. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here. We have a brand new Office Hours that just came out of the oven. We've got legendary psych rocker Ty Siegel. And Doug is back from down under. G'day. G'day. And his mommy came with him. Mommy and Gary Lusenhop are here, too. Alicia let me know that she finished the White Album, has thoughts on that. So much more on this legendary episode of Office Hours. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. Who are the animals because I don't smell them. How um, much these guys, and we, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but how, how uncool hard rock was in say like 1979 1980 um you know give some context for how how it was perceived it it was perceived as um dinosaur music at at that time like 1979 1980 and going back to to what joe was saying about the clubs like there's some there's like one whiskey poster that i found during research and it's like uh you know like two weeks in january and it's like X, the Go-Go's, the Germs, Blank, and then like Quiet Riot, and then the Plimsolls. I'm making up some of the bands, but you get the gist. These guys in the hard rock bands with their long hair were like, were actually the outsiders at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they kind of were afraid to go to the punk shows because they might get their ass kicked. But also, they were not the ones who were on stand by to get signed you had a much better chance getting signed in like a punky new wave band than as a hard rock band you know and the labels were absolutely not focused or and totally dismissive of of the long-haired hard rock bands they were like this is some 70s holdover bullshit um we have no interest in it we want the next elvis costello we want the next knack so these guys were really totally marginalized as the decade starts and really with seemingly like no hope of, of, of breaking through. But didn't there, I mean, you had Ozzy at that point in time who was putting out some, some pretty big singles. I mean, was that what they were aspiring to? Or, I mean, is it just because it's Ozzy Osbourne, people still respect that as the hard rock of the time? Well, I think, I think if you really look at it, like if you look at Ozzy in, you know, 81, he's doing Blizzard of Oz. Like he was kind of seen as, as a joke too. And he was seen as washed up. Um, You know, Blizzard of Oz didn't, it now it's considered this classic record. I don't think that it did that well at the time. Like his tour wasn't that big at the time either. Um, You know, I think that it's, and, and, I'm sort of of the same mind. Like I, I think back on my childhood and I'm like, well, this stuff was huge yeah. all the time, but 
it really, like Tom said, it, it took us doing this book to really hear from everybody, you know, and cause it wasn't just the bands trying to sort of puff up what, what they had to go through. It was also the guys we talked to at the labels and the people and the people we talked to that worked at the clubs. It's like, really nobody wanted this music at all. And the label, like Tom said, I mean, it was considered dinosaur music. And there's one thing where if you're a punk band and punk is sort of outside the mainstream and, and yeah, like, you know, the major labels aren't really touching that stuff either, but at least you still have this sort of badassery going for you and you're kind of outside the system and you're like tough and you're living on the fringes. Like, you know, you might not be making it in the mainstream world, but in some, on some level, you're still seen as mm -hmm. kind of, cool and dangerous like these bands were not they didn't even have that they were just seen as lame by the main right. at least you could get critical response if you're if you're if you're repping punk bands signing punk bands yeah at least, there, you're, at least there's a, there was a scene in place mm -hmm. and it was all considered more or less new and not just like here's some retread of something well we did this already and you know kisses kisses over why would we go back and do another kiss now since people had kiss enjoyed it and then rejected it. Right. And kiss in 1980, 1981 was really a terrible thing. It is not something that you want to revisit. <laughs> you don't like music from the elder. You know, well, I mean, and my tastes are not really sort of what anyone should go by anyway, but, uh -huh. but obviously like I'm kidding. a label, not no, that. but yeah, of course. But like a label in 1981 is not going to want to deal with a band that is bringing that kind of thing into them because that is not selling mm -hmm. at all. Did they have yeah. the makeup off by then? Was that the lick it up era? Not yet, but they did have the short hair. So right. it was oh, okay. the makeup and the short hair was, was a bad moment. The makeup, the makeup went off in 83, correct? Yes. Right around there. Yeah. The other thing we're, we're talking a little bit about punk rock being an entry point, but I also kind of think, they're, they're, they also kind of followed the Halen playbook to At, kind of push through, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, that was interesting is, so, you know, Van Halen got signed in like 76, 77. And all of these bands in our book, there's like, you know, in the early chapters, there's all of these guys, George Lynch from Dokken, you know, mm -hmm. they all think when Van Halen gets signed off the strip because they're all kind of already there, Don Dokken and, and sort of these guys are, are you know, playing in bands at, at this time on the strip. They all think that they're going to get, when Van Halen gets signed and, and, and makes it big, they think they're all going to get like sucked up right away. You know, they think like, here we go. This is it. Van Halen got, you know, Van Halen <laughs> is a hit. We're, here we go. And yeah. in fact, what happens is that that doesn't happen. Like the labels there, um, the producer, Ted Templeman, uh, who produced all the Van Halen records and actually also the Doobie brothers. Um, he has an autobiography and in it, he explains seeing going to see Van Halen for the first time at the Starwood. And he, you know, he he'd heard about this guy and when he saw Van Halen play, his thought wasn't even about this band being like the template of, of a new, you know, kind of like California flavored hard rock. Like it was the furthest thing from his mind in his mind. He said, you know, he, he saw this band, he saw this guitar player and he's like this guy and I'm quoting, but not precisely. He's like, I saw this guitar player and I realized that this guy was as good as like 
John Coltrane and I had seen Coltrane, you know? And so like his thing and Mo Austin's thing was we need this guitar player on our label. We need this guy's the next Jeff Beck. He's, he is a, you know, serious musician. They were already thinking like at that time, Ted Templeman is already thinking, I don't know about this David Lee Roth guy. Maybe I'll get Sammy Hagar from the band Montrose that I produced a couple of years ago. So they weren't really signing a hard rock band. They were signing this guitar player who they realized was, you know, the, the, the future of guitar. So that happened to have a guy who sounds like uh, Jim Dandy from Black Oak. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and Scatman <laughs> Crothers. Um, yeah. But like, but so like, so it didn't, so these bands all think that they're going to like follow through the door, but the door just closes and none of them are getting signed, which brings us, you know, it's really still just the new wave band. So like, like Van Halen is like an outlier and they are the template for all of the bands that follow in terms of the, guitar hero and the blonde singer and all that stuff. And, you know, really the look and music about girls and fun instead of about the devil and sorcerers and, and shit like that. But it, there's not like this direct through line where, you know, it's not like where you see um, Guns N' Roses get signed and then there's a million bands with, with cowboy boots and, and bandanas. But didn't uh, Quiet Riot sort of, open the gates. That was my impression. That their success sort of created the whole movement, I thought. And I'm an out, you know, I'm not a, uh, I don't know this music really well. I was uh, in my 20s, in the 80s. And, uh, and I'm from New Jersey. I heard this music in strip clubs at the time. <laughs> there you go. It was go. very popular there. there. But um, it's still, It still it, is, Mike. Yeah, I guess yeah. it is. But I'm out of the strip clubs. It's been a while. But uh, that was my only exposure to it. And Bon Jovi, who I consider sort of a pinnacle of this genre, I really disliked them from the get-go. So, you know, reading, this was sort of a whole new uh, world of music. I had picked up years ago, there was a uh, compilation called, uh, what is it called? 80s Metal Gold. And, you know, it's got a lot of these bands on there. And the bands I tended to sort of like a little more, their template wasn't Van Halen. It was either Aerosmith or ACDC. And I guess in Cinderella, you had a band that sort of had both of those. So I kind of like the, the Cinderella track. I like their story in the book. They, they seem to be the ones yeah. who never really achieved major success. They, they achieved success more than most bands. But they never, you know, were huge, I don't think. But they were sort of like a working class band. They kept doing it. Uh, so I sort of like their story. I was familiar with some of the Motley Crue antics and Guns N' Roses. There's a YouTube somewhere where you can see Cinderella doing a uh, commercial for some local hmm. hot dog stand. And that always endeared them to me forever. Um, but, but to your point, I think a lot of people think a lot of the bands were imitating Axel, but I think, I think you're right, Mike. I think they were imitating Bon Scott era ACDC. That's what I always thought Axel was doing. And then, you know, when Guns N' Roses made it big, I think everyone was like, Oh, like we're all trying to sound like that guy. And, but they, I don't think they were. Yeah. yeah I, I heard it in uh, kicks. I think they have a little bit of the Aerosmith AC DC thing going. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, but other groups, other groups clearly are, I guess it really does. So, so much of it comes down to who, who came who, first, who, 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 well, who came first and who's your hero. And, you know, if, if your hero, I mean, like, like with Bon Jovi, I mean, Bon Jovi always just wanted to be some version of Bruce Springsteen. Ultimately, that's like, that's Definitely. really what was, what was in his, his hard wiring. At, you know, if you strip it all away, it's like, that's who that kid grew up idolizing. And so even though it's got the trappings of hard rock and metal, it's just like the further down the road he gets, the further away from the, the cookie cutter version of it. Um, it, it is, it's, it's, a, but, but other people were just metal to, till I die with, with no other real kind of, doesn't seem like some of some of these acts seem to not have a whole lot of influences other than the bands you could you could predict. And Bon Jovi got the last laugh because he got the rest stop named after him in Jersey over Boom. Springsteen. <laughs> well, yeah. I think I mean that that last point is a really good point because that's what happens at the end of the era when the when the scene starts to die, and it's one of the things that becomes a big talking point in our book where it's like, okay, well, we will talk about Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit and grunge. And, and you know, there will be people in the book that will say that killed the scene. But there's a lot of people in the book that also say, well, these bands were, A, some of them were not doing their best work at this point. And B, like the, the whole scene was just glutted um, mm-hmm. with so many acts. Mm-hmm. And the, the sphere of influence had gotten so tight because you had bands that were coming out in 19, 1989 that were influenced by Poison and Motley Crue and these bands that had only been around a couple of years and were actually at the height of their popularity. So if and you're these are bands like Bang Tango. Yeah. Like, and who are know, we talking about? Well, and one, I mean, a prime example would be a band like Tough, who mm-hmm. Stevie Rochelle, the singer, you know, is very open about the fact that like, hey, he looked exactly like Brett Michaels and that got him pretty far. You know, it certainly got him far. It got him in the band. It got him a level of success um, on the strip for sure. And then, you know, they got a major label deal, but he's totally open about the fact that he looked like Brett. He dressed like Brett. I mean, the band kind of sounds like Poison. Mm -hmm. You know, Poison's only three albums in at this point. Like you don't need a band that looks and sounds and dresses exactly like them. And Tuff isn't the only one. I mean, if you went to the strip in 1989, there's probably 15 or 50 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that influence gets so tight, um, that it's just like, there's nowhere, there's nowhere to go really. And, and, and the scene was 10 years in at that point. That's a mm-hmm. long time for a musical scene. That's just it, 10 years is for, a, for, a, for, uh, to be as popular as this metal hair metal was a decade. That's a, that's an eternity in popular music. That's longer than grunge. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's I, twice yeah. as long as grunge. I have to say, I really appreciated how, how you kind of handled the ending because so many um, books and, and documentaries just kind of say, and then Nirvana happened at the end. And, yeah. and I really did appreciate that. It was like, well, there was this and that and that. And, yeah. you know, as someone, um, as someone who grew up in Los Angeles, like I didn't really see the difference between, you know, uh, uh, and a, uh, what we called alternative back then and a punk band, you know, or a metal band, it would be like, Oh, I love, um, 
you know, Jane's Addiction, and I love, um, and I love uh, Aero, not Aerosmith, Poison. And but those bands like like a Jane's Addiction or like a Faith No More or stuff like that, they weren't the big, big, big kick. But a lot of them were just kind of doing something a little different. I was like, oh, this is weird, and we're going to call that alternative. And it wasn't, you know, yeah. these, there were these baby steps that were happening, you know, in the, in the early nineties that I think, you know, finally, you know, broke the door. I mean, Lollapalooza happened in 1991. Nirvana wasn't like huge, huge yet. Right. Well, the record no, wasn't I mean, even out yet. It wasn't out yeah, yet. That exactly. record was now. My, my question about uh, the Nirvana point um, is, you know, when you were talking to these musicians and they brought up Nirvana and somebody, some of them were, were still a little bitter about it. And then, and then some of them felt like uh, they had come to terms with it and they're like, Oh, you know, I like Nirvana now. And I, I was always part of that, that whole, you know, I, I enjoyed the grunge thing. Um, could you tell which musicians were like, you know, especially the ones that were like, Oh no, I'm, I'm cool with it. That they probably changed their tune over time. Yeah, like what? What was it like? Please talk as much as you want about what it was like to bring up the the Nirvana question to these. Going back to what you were saying way at the beginning of of this, like I think we, and I will get to answering your question, but like we did get to these people at a good time, and Rich was talking about this too. I mean, you know, if we had tried to do this book in 1997 yeah everyone involved would have been miserable and like bussing tables or you know in like just in a horrible mood because they were completely canceled at that point now the people in these bands um are out working again like you said you know they're playing they all you know some of them have day jobs too, but they go out and they do weekend dates. They fly in, there's equipment there. They fly out. A lot of them are taking home more money than when they had, you know, all of this overhead and, and sort of this music has been accepted, you know, it's somewhat as like, it's been let into the classic rock sort of, uh, uh, pen now. So like these guys and, and women are not, um, as shell shocked as they were. Um, so it's, so, you know, so you can bring it up with them. And I think that, um, what a lot of them feel like is that they didn't, it's not that it's not Nirvana that bothered them. I mean, I, it's that they were, and this is what is odd about this music and part of what fascinated both Rich and I about it. And it always has is it's not like that the music fell out of fashion, you know, it's not like pop punk in, in, in the aughts or whatever, where, you know, you've got some big bands and then it sort of fades away. Um, you know, the guys in blink 182 don't have to pretend that they were never in blink 182. The people in these bands in like the early to mid nineties could not say that they had been in these bands. You know, there's this story in the book where Brian Forsyth from kicks, who is like a great guitar player and a great guy to interview in, in the book, he gets hooked up to go audition for the wallflowers in like 1994. And he's living in LA and mind you, like kicks were not the biggest band of the era, but they had a platinum album and like a number nine single, you know? So they were pretty 
big and he goes to uh, this audition and does not even mention that he was in kicks because he knows that that would be immediate disqualification. Like everyone who produced these records, who was in the bands, who the A&R guys who signed the bands, they all were just thrown out completely and unemployable for like the better part of a decade. So it was a real, you know, it's not, it's not like the, the old guard sort of like being a little bit envious of the new guard. It's that they were just, there was like a coup and, and these, they were just totally shocked because mm-hmm. like you're saying in the beginning in like this 91 zone, there was actually like a peaceful 9091, like a weird initial peaceful coexistence. Like mm-hmm. there, you know, um, I saw Alice in Chains open for Extreme at the Cat Club in New York City. <laughs> um, you know, Skid Row toured with Pantera. There were these concrete foundation things in in LA where like Skid Row is playing with Soundgarden. Um, you know, and a lot of the guy, the guy like. Kim Thale and, and Jerry Cantrell from, from Alice in Chains and, and Soundgarden, um, they don't hate, they didn't hate hard rock. So there was like, there was an initial coexistence. And I think when Nirvana came out, you know, for the first three or four months, people like, I think a lot of the people in these bands were like, Oh, that's a fucking kick-ass song. And this band rocks, you know? And, you know, Guns N' Roses asked them to go on tour with them. Skid Row asked Nirvana to go on tour with them. Um, so there was there wasn't this sense immediately that it was going to be like this binary question where one thing would live and one thing would be completely extinct immediately. So I think a lot of them were just really surprised because right. this doesn't usually happen like that. They were just you know shocked. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting because they. Um when, when certain people talk like the one of the quiet, uh, not one of the twisted sister guys talks about where it's just like, yeah, it was like you go to Thanksgiving dinner and then Thanksgiving dinner gets taken away. And it's just like, but I mean, the, look, the timeline for twisted sister doesn't even remotely track to be impacted <laughs> by grunge. I mean, there's like good five year yeah. gap mm-hmm. before. So that's just, that's just, that's, that's not being honest with how it actually went down. But so much of the complaining about them ties back to they looked like regular people on stage. Like that's a, that's a smear as far as the metal bands were concerned that Nirvana could be dressed like they were in the audience and that's how they go up on stage and they just play the guitar. They play the songs and they just do it without the frills and the the thing is that any the the scene like you had said earlier had started to maybe rot a little bit it you know eating chasing its own tail and there's just like an there's an ugliness that can settle into certain scenes when it's just nothing but success and and reward you don't have to be as mindful of other things and i think they might, you know, certain people don't seem to take that into account that people maybe just had gotten their fill with it and that it was not maybe the most fun scene anymore either. Like the, the metal stuff was just a little, 
played out and maybe not so much fun. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said to that point that in, whether or not grunge comes in or alternative or any of that, there's just nowhere left to go because what are you going to do? in Like in 1990, you look at Poison, for instance, right? They put out the Flesh and Blood record. You know, on the back of that, they're in jeans and cowboy boots and their hair is not hairsprayed up, it's down. I mean, they certainly still look like, I mean, they don't look like a grunge band, but they also don't look like the Poison of look what the cat dragged in and there's no Nirvana, you know, at least on the mainstream stage yet. None of that has really hit yet. Mm. Um, So these bands, but there there is a guns and roses by that point. Well, yeah. And that, that's actually, and that's a point that I think we make in the book too. And that Tom and I have certainly talked about a lot in interviews is that guns and roses might have had more of an effect on this scene and more of a shift on the scene than maybe even Nirvana and grunge did because people, I mean, all these bands start to change when Guns N' Roses hits, you know, but so for a band in 1990, they can't look and sound the way they did in 1986. The fans don't want that anymore, but then the fans don't necessarily want them changing either. So you're kind of stuck, you know, you're kind of in a catch 22 there. Like you can't, you're kind of damned if you do damned with you don't damned if you don't. And at the same time also like Kids, people are getting older. So mm-hmm. for a new generation to come in, like Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, all this stuff from like 84, 85, like that's their older brother's shit. They don't want that anymore. I thought, yeah. I thought, I the, uh, oh, sorry. I thought, I thought mm-hmm. that that point you guys made towards the end about Garth Brooks was really interesting. I never, with the sound reporting, the digital, uh, you know, barcode stuff. I didn't, I didn't ever consider that. I always heard the Nirvana argument and I've never heard anything about that, but that's, that was really uh, interesting. I had no idea. Could you explain what that is? The bar, the, the sound scan when that rolled in, that's what you're talking about, Pat. Yes. I mean, basically, and this is a rich, do you want to take this or you want me to? I think it was someone you interviewed that said that. Okay. I, I think it was. And it was, Basically, it's a it's a it's a it's a theory that you know before SoundScan basically came in and was a method for uh, record stores. They would scan the barcode code, and so and the charts became based on the actual sales of records. Which I mean, it sounds weird that it wasn't before that, um, but before SoundScan comes in where where the charts are directly tied to units sold, it's a weird and very, very corruptible algorithm combining like radio play and sales and this and that and the other thing. Much more, much more fuzzy math. And so the theory that this manager presents is that like it's possible that for the last couple years of this hard rock thing, the books were totally cooked and really these bands weren't selling what they were and i mean look it i don't know if that's true or not but they also weren't drawing as well or or putting out the best records no exactly Mm -hmm. so there's no there's the the thing i will say about nirvana and this is me saying it and not someone in the in um one of the bands but i do think that a lot i think a lot of the alternative bands maybe weren't like weren't punk rock kids they were also 
rock kids, you know, particularly the hard rock ones, like, yeah, like the Pearl Jam guys and the, and the Soundgarden guys had all grown up on Sabbath and, and Priest and, and, and so and the Alice in Chains guys, you know, um, Kurt Cobain was a really like a, like a fully like punk rock indie guy. And so he had that baggage about, um, you know, he really had the baggage about authenticity and about, you know, um, staying true to yourself, but also, and, you know, which seems much more normal today. He was completely, uh, disgusted by what he perceived as the homophobia and misogyny of the hard rock right. bands of right. the eighties. Like, yeah. and like he with like, and he had zero tolerance for that stuff. Like that's yeah. why they didn't go on, on tour with guns and roses as he th- because they're, they're these homophobic lyrics mm-hmm. guns and roses. So it was like zero tolerance. And so I think that his, and I don't even think that that attitude was possibly that of the other people in, in Nirvana, but he was the sort of spiritual figurehead of this sort of new movement. And I think that, and I feel like people, um, you know, just fell in with that. And I think that that's where sort of the wholesale rejection on some level of what came before it was, was sort of some, uh, shockwave of his aesthetic of his aesthetic uh where it's a, it's as cultural as it is musical mm-hmm. if yeah. not more it's it's more of a just like i don't like the the philosophy of this as whereas like yeah i'm sure there was still ma- music that that look he he grew up with with hard rock and loving hard rock hey, and all this Queen. stuff and and yeah so so he has an affinity for the same stuff that a lot of those other guys came up listening to, but he also just didn't like the trappings of it. The, the, you know, just the inherent uh, sexism and, and just implied, you know, homophobia and all that stuff just did not, um, did not track because also it really was, it's easy. Two things that are easy to lose sight of when, if you weren't like, alive uh during that and i i was it's just like it was getting like the kind of thing like the sebastian box stuff when he wore the shirt that said about aids the the raid shirt that was aids just like he truly thought it was just like I don't know. It just seemed like they they thought they were like royalty like they were untouchable at that point like these artists really thought they were, they believed that because they were playing in front of 20,000 people that they were just gods. Yeah. yeah. That there was no consequence or anything like Sebastian box seemed truly stunned that people had any criticism <laughs> of him in any form ever is yeah. what it felt like at that point in time. Well, Sebastian, and he makes this point in the book as well. He's like, you know, he was marketed as hard rocks, bad boy and mm-hmm. celebrated. And he's like, so what, what did you expect? I mean, well, first of all, he's also Sebastian Bach and he's a fucking lunatic, which is one of the and great he's things. 19. About him. And he's That's, 19 yeah. at that point. That's yeah. the he's thing a, too. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a savage animal. 
Yeah, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You have to say it. Savage you, animal. Somebody had to say it. <laughs> but, no. you know, since, since the time he was 19, he has gotten everything that he has wanted. Um, you know, he's so this he beautiful really guy. He's this physically beautiful uh, f- figure on stage who is, uh, has this booming voice and is, t- is super tall, just like a command. Like he, he just seems like he has everything. Yeah. And so, and I mean, he also, he says in the book too, it's like somebody gave him the shirt. He just threw it on, but he probably didn't think that much about it. Now he could be, you know, sort of, telling the story in a way that that protects him a little bit, but it also could very well be true. I mean, mm-hmm. whether or not he read the shirt first and he probably did. And, you know, one of us might've been like, Oh, I'm not going to put that on. Like he also probably didn't give it more than a second's thought, you know, and then he just threw it on. So, and those are the consequences because then you're photographed wearing it. But, but yeah, to your earlier point, I mean, I don't think, a lot of these guys really did think about the consequences. I think that they were thought they were above it because also their bad behavior was always rewarded. I mean, these bands also all idolized Motley Crue and Motley Crue, I mean, were like just bad actors all around, but that's what made them Motley Crue. Um, The singer killed someone. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, it didn't hurt them at all. And you could make the argument that helped them. I mean, and then their bassist died. Yeah. the you know, Guns N' like, Roses album um, came out, you know, that, yeah. that one, one in a million is like one of the, 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 the lyrics to this day are not any less tame. You know, are, are, uh, it's still shocking when you hear it today and yeah. they put it out and the, the, the excuse was just kind of like, eh, I'm not going to get into it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. And I'm just like, who could get away with that ever? Yeah. <laughs> Axel Rose. Yeah. True. Now, who um we'll we'll get to some questions that people had sent in. I want to I want to uh, yeah I've got some, some listener questions here. But let working on this. Who were some of the surprises when you did interviews? Who were people that you were surprised you got? Because did you get Izzy Stradlin to participate? No, because there is a quote. There are a couple of quotes from him. I wasn't sure what, how they were sourced though. Yeah, they were sourced. I mean, I think a few of them are from an old guitar world. I mean, mm. you know, then there was one other article. I would say Izzy, there were a few people we didn't get. Izzy, I think, was the one guy we didn't get where we didn't even bother to try. Like, you kind of know where that's going. <laughs> yeah, like, there's no, clear. Yeah. there's no point. So who were some of the surprises in terms of, like, who'd you come away going like, Oh my God, that, that guy's so much different than I ever would have thought when I was a kid listening to their music. And the thing is I keep saying guy over and over. Right. It's a pretty I safe mean, bet to say guy when you're talking about this the, whole the weird. Scene. The thing is like for me and, and uh, honestly, like I, and it, it was, it, I, for me, not that it wasn't a surprise because I've, worked with a lot of female musicians, et cetera, et cetera. But like the, how cool everyone in Vixen was, was like mm-hmm. a real surprise to me. And also, and, and the, um, the bass player share, like, in, especially like she, you know, replaced Paul Simonon in Havana 3am, like after he left, like, and you're like, really? What? Um, oh, they no. were, to me like just great to talk to because there's like no 
there's like you know they they talk about bad like bad things that happened to them, but really they were just like like tough and 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 like ass kicking. So that was a surprise, like how much fun talking to them was for me. The big one was Vito Brada from White Lion, the guitar player, because he's a, he had only done one interview in the preceding 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love him. Like he is to me the best guitar player of all of these guys in a weird way. And he is a person who, when this stuff ended, like he literally just never played again. He just lives on Staten Island with his mom and a parrot. Um, and like, so getting to talk to him and having him be delightful and sort of feeling like I was connecting with him was like this huge, like special treat. Like it's really possible. This whole book for me was like a pretext to to have a reason to interview him. And so when it actually came through, I was like, Oh shit. Um, he was, <laughs> you know, he was amazing. And, um, you know, Ricky Rocket from uh, from Poison was also like incredibly sort of like honest and frank and not and and like would answer your questions, which is something that some people won't do. Like they some people you ask them a question and they answer what they want to answer, but it could not be the question. And he really would address everything you, you threw at him, which I thought was great. And who who might be on the other side of things where you're just like leaks. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds like a cop-out, but I don't know that there really was anyone on, on my end. Like I'm sort of trying to rack my brain a little bit. Yeah, that that sounds like a (laughs) cop-out. You know, I, (laughs) you know, I guess the one person I'll say, and it's actually why he's not even in the book, but it's not, it's just a boring story was I interviewed, uh, Jizzy Pearl from Love Hate for the book. Um, you know, and he just, he just wasn't that cooperative. You know, he also, he had some newer stuff going on at the moment too. He seemed kind of annoyed about, you know, this, this sort of line of questioning that was just about the past. He kind of wasn't really giving anything up. It was just kind of just one or two word answers. Oh, wow. um, and just, and just sort of being very obvious about the fact that he, he didn't want to talk about this shit and, and go back and, and look at that again. So sure. what wound up happening is that he just doesn't have a voice in the book, which I'm sure he doesn't give a shit one way or the other, but I would have loved to have him in there because I know that he has a pretty unique take on things and that he's actually a pretty smart guy. I mean, he's written some books and, you know, where he kind of looks back on his experience on the strip that actually is pretty funny. Um, but he just didn't want to do it for us. And that's, that's his choice. So, I mean, that was really the only one for me that I was like, well, that was kind of a waste of a half hour, but otherwise, you know, on to just to sort of jump on what Tom was saying, like there was no one that really on the other side that really surprised me either because to, because everybody, I, everybody was just really great actually. Like they were all really surprisingly open about their history and, and more or less clear eyed given and given what a lot of these people have been through and what they, you know, what they did to their bodies and their brains back then, you wouldn't necessarily expect that, but like everyone's stories usually tracked with everyone else's stories. Um, you know, and like a guy, like I'll point to a guy like Tracy guns for me, because he was a friend also 
previous to us doing this book, but beyond being someone we could just go to whenever we had a question, you know, he vouched for us and, you know, he texted Tammy down and he texted Ricky Rackman and all these guys. And he was like, Hey, talk to these guys, you know, like they're doing a good thing here. And there were a few people like that, that really, you know, their, their help was just not just in their own stories, but in getting other people on board was just enormous. I think that shines through too. I think I really enjoyed reading what, what Tracy had to say in the book Mm -hmm. really came through for me. Mike, Mike, who are, who would you say your favorite? Is there anybody who you think was like a good guy coming out of this? You not as a fan of the music necessarily, but just like, Oh, that guy seems all right. And who else would you say like, man, that's not my, that's, that's what I thought the worst of this scene would be. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say Cinderella was sort of the band that I could, I was sort of rooting for. They seem sort of level headed. They, they didn't seem excessive, you know. They just sort of did their thing. They they achieved some success. They they didn't become, you know, ridiculous like I guess you could say Motley Crue just is sort of the epitome of a rock excess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the band that sort of appealed to me. Um, sure. I'm listening to some of the. I, you guys didn't, you know. I was listening. I was doing some homework before the show. So I was listening to '80s Metal Gold, and they've got King, <laughs> Kingdom Come on there. Which is what we should have called there. the book. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. They've got Kingdom Come on there, which I don't think you guys even touched that band, did you? We did not. Was, was that a a choice, or just you weren't interested in that band? I know they have a German singer. They they're, they're we, sort of like a Led Zeppelin knockoff band, mm-hmm. you know? They they yeah they they told we basically in order to preserve our sanity um stayed with american bands i mean the we, we there's like one or two quotes from i mean ozzy's obviously not american and there's a couple quotes from def leppard guys but we knew that if we went into like bands from germany or like gad from sweden and we started like just doing all that like we had to like circumscribe it we had to like draw the line somewhere or we'd still be working on it so yeah that, it wasn't like that they were that we thought they soft or, or, or anything like that. It was just that um, we were, it, we were always relieved to find a reason not to have abandoned because with the oral history format where it's all of these quotes to tell the story of a band or of an event, you need like four or five people to have different perspectives on an event. So any band that you decide to cover like that, you've got to talk to everybody and the manager and the, you know, this and then that. And it can, it just becomes, that can be a month of your life. Uh, mm-hmm. So you got to be really, go ahead. I, I, yeah. I'll say this. One guy I came across is a real tough guy. I don't know if it, <laughs> it is George Lynch. Yes. You know, which I didn't really know anything about him going into the book. Grumpy. But he just comes across as a real tough guy. You know, he's bragging about the uh, tapping t- technique, the guitar you know, that uh, he felt like he, he, he got ripped off by Eddie Van Halen. Uh, was he a tough guy to interview or is that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did the George interview. I, I would say he's not the easiest. Um, he, you know, and he, I, to his credit, though, he came on very early. He came on before we even had a book deal and agreed yeah. to do it. Um which is saying, you know, which is a feather in his cap because there was no reason for him to really sit and be sort of poked and prodded 
with all this stuff about his history. Um, you know, but and he is a little bit, he can be a little bit difficult. And I think also the, the thing that's difficult with him is there's actually a lot of like messiness in the Dawkins story and in really the George Lynch story, because he comes up at the same time as, you know, Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, he has had, he's enjoyed a really long and successful career, but he's obviously not held in the same regard as Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was at that time. So, you know, you never know how someone's going to feel about that. And the whole Dawkins thing is really messy um, the stories Don, in the Don Dawkins seems like a, a handful. Don, yeah, Don Dawkins isn't easy either. And in the book, there's a lot of we had to get in some, into some really crazy stories that went on. And so you're you have to really just go to these places that sometimes the people are wondering like, why the hell are you even asking me this stuff? And plus, it's 40 years ago. Like, I don't fucking know why I acted that way. Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, which is to say, like, Don, I mean, George was great in the book. It's it's an interview that I'm glad is done and over with and that I don't have to do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's get to some questions from listeners. Uh, Jason, can you read them out? Yeah, I got a couple here for you. Do a few. Yeah. Um, so this one is uh, kind of along the lines of what we were talking about in the Nirvana area in 91. What's the best hair metal album or hard rock album that was being recorded while grunge was killing its future? Are there any standout albums in that later period? Uh, Warrant's Dog Eat Dog (laughs) is really good. And we haven't really gone there in this conversation, but in my estimation like Warren and Janie Lane of Warren was like the, one of the top like craft song, like song craftsmen of that era. That, that record is a record that is really good. And that um, just came out and, and, and died a death, Rich, what what do you think? <laughs> I mean, geez, like an early nineties hair metal record. I mean, I actually really love the the Skid Row Subhuman Race record, and I loved it at the time. Like I thought, I, they were a band that was still doing great stuff in the '90s, you know. And they and they were a band that, I mean, they obviously took a hit because of all that stuff. Um, but you know, Slave to the Grind. I mean, that's the number one record in the '90s. They do that tour and Pantera's opening, and like they can sort of hang with Pantera. They probably, you know, they probably still would have imploded anyway, but. Obviously, their interband shit hastened all of that, but the records they were making, I thought were still really good records. All right. What would you say is the Citizen Kane of hair metal? Oh. <laughs> uh, I would say the Citizen Kane of hair metal is Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood. Okay. <laughs> because it is the most ambitious and sort of well executed record by this the, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like this massive thing by the by a first time director, but it was mm-hmm. like it's the biggest it's 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 some it's like this record that like where they just went big. 
and they nailed it. And that was Bob Rock, wasn't it? That was Bob Rock. Yeah. I mean, Metallica does the Black Album with Bob Rock because they want to sound like Dr. Feelgood. Right. You know, like it's it. Dr. Feelgood is, you know, um, and also it's got a cameo by Robin Zander of Cheap Trick, and Cheap Trick is my favorite band of all time. But it is just like that is the most like massive sort of uh, platonic ideal of like what like a hair metal record should be. Like it's just the hugeness um, on some level, like the dumbness, um, <laughs> the heaviness, you know, like, like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. There's a song on it called she goes down, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, so it's got all, it, it takes all the buttons, but it's just so well done. And it's like, and, and it's so unusual for a band, especially a band where the guys were like a, a total mess that like on their fifth record or their fourth record, they like totally knock it out of the park like that. Rich, is it uh doctor feel good for you? I mean, that's a, I, I, I can't say that I've ever thought about this particular question before. <laughs> it's a good um, one. It's a good one. But, but Tom kind of nailed it. I mean, I don't know that I can think of a, a record necessarily that hits every one of these points, but you know, also if you're looking for like a debut sort of record, I mean, I'd always point to like the first Poison record, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like just just in the sense that I mean, it doesn't have this sort of hugeness that Tom is talking about, and that is probably a requirement for this answer. But it's just it it really, I think, encapsulates a, a lot of what this thing is that we're talking about and what it was, you know, and like if you want to know what it looked like and sounded like and felt like at that time that might be a good place to go to. And it's in terms of like, you know, being as, you know, over the top and all that as possible. I mean, they certainly hit it out of the park in terms of the look on that record. If maybe not in terms of like sound and production or songwriting or anything else. I think it's the, I think that, Look what the cat dragged in is like the fast times at Richmond High up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the final listener question we have for you, um, and uh, we can we can start wrapping things up uh, for Best Show Book Club. If you had to choose a contributor from the book to sit down with and flesh out a full bio, a full book, who would it be and why? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean without concerns about whether or not anybody would purchase said book. No concerns. No, no just concerns. The, yeah. Your um, version, what you would like to see exist. The Tammy Down story. I know I would read it. <laughs> Might have to take he a shower is, after writing it. Right, right. I would read it. Tammy Down really is like, he, the amount of, uh, and then for people listening who don't know who that is, he's, Tammy Down is the lead singer of the band Faster Pussycat. And he's like the dirtiest. He's just the, the, the role that he plays in this book in terms of like giving us like our sleaze quotient and our humor <laughs> quotient. Cause like neither of us, like a, as interviewers are the best at like being like, so tell me about the worst thing you ever did with a female fan. You know, um, he just brought, he just, he's like, He's like this little like sprinkle of pepper every 25 pages in our book. I think he's just awesome in our book. He, nope. he really like, he's like without him, in, without him in there, um, you, you, you there might've been trouble. And <laughs> let me, um, let me see who I think I would want to, 
I mean, honestly, and we didn't, does it have to be someone who's, we actually already interviewed for the book? Because really who I would like to talk to and do a full life story with would be Cece DeVille of Poison. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because because he's hilarious and like self-deprecating and he's had such a weird life. Um, and I can say this, like one, of, and Rich and I have talked about this. I, and, and both of us being uh, Jews, I was absolutely completely surprised when I found out that CC DeVille was like the Scandinavian and that he wasn't like a Jew because he's got this like, like slapstick. Am I digging myself into to, to, to hell here? He's got like this, like his self-deprecating humor and his like his whole quote unquote shtick. I was always just like, Oh, this guy is like, uh, you know, he, he's doing shtick mm-hmm. and, 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 and he's not. And it, that makes him even weirder. But the fact that he was this transplant to, to LA and then he ended up, you know, hooked on crack and, and, and then, blew up to 300 pounds and, and everyone always called him the worst guitar player. He's like fascinating to me. And also the one who got me into this mess because the first time I saw the talk dirty to me video with that truck with guitars lined all the way down it. Like that's when I was done. <laughs> yeah. Like that was literally that I can pinpoint. Like I'm like, that's, that is my dream. Well, especially know? if you're a Rick Nielsen fan. Yeah. And I think like, it, he like I didn't even know at that time because I was only like fourteen. I wasn't fully, I hadn't fully keyed into Cheap Trick yet, but he obviously had, and I think he was my gateway to Rick Nielsen. Oddly, you know what I mean? Like, oh, oh yeah. wait, this guy is doing that thing, and, and then discovering Rick Nielsen, and be like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Well, there was a there was a power pop element to a lot of uh, Poison songs. So I could see Poison, how that's even. Sure, yeah. There's a story that I've not been able to ever get a uh, straight. I even asked Tom Worman, and he was a little bit that I that the two that Rick Nielsen and um, not that they play on the record, but that that Bunny Carlos and Rick Nielsen were brought in for the second Poison record to like give them some power pop like pointers to help them get through a couple songs. Oh, there's amazing. a lot of shared DNA there. Yeah, because like. Poison is not a metal band. They are a power pop band. Yeah. And that is, you know, just truth. Well, this book, Nothing But a Good Time, is nothing but a good time. I got to say, <laughs> you gave it the perfect title. It's such a fun book. And I I think it's, it, if you aren't even a fan of metal stuff, Look, look, I'm not, this is not where I live musically, but I know all the, I know the bands and stuff. And these stories are fascinating and they're well told. And it's interesting to just go through a, through a decade plus with all of these acts and hear their stories. And you both did an amazing job telling the story and encapsulating an entire world and, it's it's just a blast to read. And anybody, if you're a fan of the music, if you're a fan of insanity, I think you'd there was a, look, I just dropped it. Here it's and you'll get a lot for your value too. You hear how heavy yeah. that was? That's a thick book. It, it's a thick book. Um, yeah, it's a really great book, and uh I think people will get a real kick out of it, whether they're a fan of the 
music or just a fan of crazy rock stories. So uh, thanks both of you for coming on the show. It's a real treat and we appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. This was, I was, uh, I was truly uh, dumbfounded and honored to be picked as the first book of the, of the best show book club. Oh, look at the, the honor is ours. All ours. Hey, before, before we wrap, I I just wanted to uh, acknowledge the insanity of, that uh, Jack Russell uh, break. Oh yeah. That break in an entering story. I mean, that, that is the, oh cra- you're talking about crazy rock stars. That is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. I cannot believe he is a still alive <laughs> and B not behind bars. I mean, yeah. that is in that. I mean, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. No, it's and, repulsive. And, <laughs> and I don't know which one of you interviewed Jack Russell. For this, well, we are. I'm adding. I'm adding uh, Jack Russell to the Zoom right now. He'll be in here oh, in cool. a second. Well, okay, well, I'm going to say goodbye so. then. That's. I think that's my. That's my. <laughs> no, it really is one of those ones where it's a story. This this insanely violent story. It's like it's like the final third of Boogie Nights is what it's like. But with <laughs> opening like, on that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it's like if Boogie yeah. Nights started with that scene, starts with that scene, yeah, yeah, yeah and that was just I mean, a moment. It's like you kind of just let him go and let him monologue a little bit, and you mm-hmm. you present the story, you know, uninterrupted. And I, I mean, I will say that he, I mean, he told this story, and he was not it certainly was not something he was proud of. He wasn't like, yeah, man, you know, and then I, mm-hmm. I no, got no, away with I, it, and I could. You know, yeah, he was really regretful. I Um, I went back to that at least three times because I couldn't believe it. I had to explain it to other people, and then I had to go back to make sure I was getting it right because I just could. I had to look up who this guy was. I mean, it was there was so much to that. I mean, there's a lot of moments in that book too that I didn't know anything about. I mean, even like Twisted Sister being a headlining act years before signing to a label and kind of owning the East coast's end of it. Like I had no idea about any of that. It's really uh, there's a lot of nuggets like that in this book that are, are, uh, you know, insightful. Oh, there's and, so much to get out of it. Yeah. I truly. agree. With you. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Jack um, Russell I, I, thing is the, is the single longest thing where we let somebody run in the book, like mm-hmm. in terms of the longest quote, we're like, here you go, man. Yeah. Wow. The floor is yours. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Oh, it's that's one of many th- thrilling and surprising stories in this book. Nothing but a good time. Tom Bojour, Richard Beanstock, thank you so much for both coming on and talking. And we will talk to you both soon. Thank you. Guys. Thank you so much. And Joe, what's next? Joe, what's next? Joe, thank you for uh, being a best show listener and joining us. Yes. Thank on you, the Joe, for your wisdom, Joe Dana. And what, what, what's next? Are you guys are working on another book or are you, what's, what's in the pipeline? Um, we are working on another book. Um, it's, I mean, we're going to basically do a, a book where we are focusing on the nineties alternative rock explosion. Okay. Amazing. Um, That's exciting. I'm in. And, and the Lollapalooza festival and just sort of taking it on in the same manner that we have with this book very exciting is it okay to say that tom it's okay to say that and then in theoretically there is a uh there is a docu-series uh hopefully that is going to get made of of nothing but a good time 
Oh my so, god, amazing! That's fantastic. So amazing. So, uh, so right. fingers crossed on that one too. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time, and we will talk to you down the road. All right. See you later. Okay. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.